This is an ABC podcast. Hi there, Tom Switzer here, and welcome to another episode of Between the Lines. Now, today on the program, we'll be commemorating the 25th anniversary of Europe's worst massacre since the Holocaust. In 1995, more than 8,000 people died in Srebrenica. The town was supposed to be a UN-protected safe haven in the vicious civil war that tore Yugoslavia apart. Instead, the civilians ended up being massacred by Bosnian Serbs. They were lightning fast. With their superior weapons, they easily overran the lightly armed Bosnian government troops and the token force of UN peacekeepers. The UN's failure to protect the civilians inspired Washington to launch unilateral action against Serbia and end the civil war. Would things be the same today? Now that's later in the program. But first, defence. Well, last week, the Morrison government launched a defence strategy and force structure review. Now, the move signals a major shift away from the strategy outlined in the last defence white paper. Remember that. It was just four years ago, in 2016, it plotted out Australia's strategic course for the next decade. But that white paper has, as we know, been rapidly overtaken by events. COVID, China, all that. Now, the new review has promised $270 billion over the next decade to enhance Australia's defence capabilities, with renewed focus on areas like cyber and space capabilities and the possible development of hypersonic weapons. We'll be fitting aircraft with long-range anti-ship missiles, increasing underwater surveillance and boosting our fuel and munitions reserves. Now, underscoring the seriousness of the shift, the Prime Minister even drew comparisons to the 1930s and the lead-up to World War II. That period of the 1930s has been something I have been revisiting on a very regular basis. And when you connect both the economic challenges and the global uncertainty, it can be very haunting. But is the money too much or not enough? Is it going to all the right places? And will it do enough to safeguard Australia from China's increasing assertiveness and its rapidly growing military capabilities? What's the role of Australia's diplomacy in all of this? Well, joining me to discuss this are three distinguished guests. Bates Gill is Professor of Asia-Pacific Security Studies at Macquarie University. Hi there, Bates. Thank you, Tom. Good to be here. Melissa Conley-Tyler is a Research Fellow at the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. Hi there, Melissa. Good to speak again, Tom. And Peter Jennings is Executive Director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. G'day, Peter. Hi, Tom. Now, Peter, can you talk us through the type of scenarios and potential conflicts that the Defence Review uh, is preparing us for? The scenario that the review is focusing on is uh, one involving uh, high-end conventional conflict. So, uh, you know, gone are the days of stabilisation operations in Timor or uh, uh, counter-terrorism operations in Afghanistan. Uh, this document is preparing for state-on-state conflict uh, involving countries that have sophisticated military forces. And, um, of course, the, the document doesn't say, and I, I don't think it would be reasonable to expect it to say, uh, that China is the problem. Uh, but let me tell you, China is the problem. Uh, that is the now near-peer competitor that we are thinking about when we think about what's adequate in terms of the type of military capability we need to have. Um, and that, too, does reflect a change um, 
from past years, Tom, uh, I recall when I started my defence career, we were thinking much more about the risks presented by Indonesia and mm. uh, the so-called low-level incursions in the north. Well, of course, that's no longer uh, features in anyone's strategic thinking. And really, it's about China and the risks that the People's Republic is presenting to all of its neighbours uh, in a broad sense in the um, Indo-Pacific region and beyond. Okay, but crudely putting it, some say it's laying the groundwork for Fortress Australia. Are you saying this is preparing us to join a potential US-led uh, containment slash war against China, for example, to protect Taiwan? Peter Jennings. I think that there's uh, it covers a spectrum of possibilities. What One possibility, which uh, I think is uh, perhaps newer in terms of the language of the document, is that we might uh, conceivably end up having to face military conflict without being able to rely on the direct combat support of the United States. And, and that's what then leads to discussions around extra stockpiling of munitions and, and fuel and so forth. But I think in general terms, yes, the expectation is that Australia, uh, through its history, has been a country that forms coalitions, uh, usually of like-minded partners that uh, share the same types of objectives. And um, the, the plan will design a defence force that really gives us the capacity to do that with regional allies, like, for example, Japan, uh, but also with our traditional ally, the United States. Okay, Bates Gill, you've recently completed a review of China's defence capabilities and its recent military modernisation, specifically looking at the implications for Australia. When do you expect the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, and its navy, when do you expect them to have the capability to project power as far as Australia and our near Pacific neighbours? Well, in many respects, Tom, they already can. I mean, they have uh, the long-range missile capabilities to do that. Uh, you know, as a, from a standoff position launched from their own from their own homeland against ours. Uh, but what I think uh, the the new strategy is looking at is really uh, the development of capability over the next. 10, 15, or 20 years, and that's by the Chinese own own acknowledged calendar, uh, that they would be able to, by that time, amass uh, a large enough capability, both in terms of its long-range strike, you know, striking from their own homeland, but also uh, to be able to project power uh, past the so-called first and second island change and be in a position to more directly threaten, through those uh, platforms, uh, Australian Security. So, you know, we're talking a 10 or 15 year window here. And I think given the time it does take to try and respond to and develop the, the deterrent and defense capabilities for Australia, that's that's, you know, that's in some ways a short window uh, for Australia to be mobilizing in reaction. Now, Melissa Conley, Tyler, what's the role of Australian diplomacy in all this? Well, I think it needs to have a big role. Um, and one of the concerns uh, when we look at the deteriorating strategic environment is we think, oh, that's a defence problem. And so when the Prime Minister launches the strategic update with those comparisons with the 1930s, it pushes us towards seeing it in purely military terms. Um, but we don't just want to see things in that security lens. We want to think about all of the parts of our national power projection. So that's diplomacy and development as well as defence. Um, I think if, if most people thought about it, they'd think, oh, well, we invest in all three strongly. But that's not where it is. Um, you know, if you look at the last federal budget, it's $59 billion to defence and less than $7 billion to diplomacy and development together, the lowest point we've ever had in our history. And I think we're missing that opportunity 
if we don't take as seriously the way that diplomacy and development can shape things in the world. So I was struck today, I was um, at an event uh, looking at the latest Lowy poll on what are the major concerns that Australians have at the moment of the, the top threats in the world. And the first five are all non-traditional. They're drought, environment, disaster, um, climate change, pandemics, and downturn in global economy. And those are places where, you know, military spending isn't going to help shape that environment. Um, so we need to, if we want to have an effect on those, we need to be thinking much more about what we can do in the diplomacy and development domain. Peter Jennings, what would you say in response to uh, Melissa's uh, observations there? Because they reflect a certain mindset that that perhaps we should be focused more on uh, non-state actors rather than, say, China, for instance. Uh, well, I think all of these, uh, you know, are threats that have to be taken seriously. Um, and simply because, you know, we're living in the middle of a pandemic, for example, doesn't mean that climate change has gone away and is no longer going to present a problem to us. Um, I, I guess what I'd say is that, the, the, you know, the five things that uh, Melissa listed that were in the, featured in the Lowy poll in terms of popular concerns are also the things which could, in different ways, lead to the risks of conflict um, escalating in the Indo-Pacific region generally. So, uh, you know, my, my view is, um, while I would like to see um, spending on diplomacy increased, uh, while I see development assistance as being something which is effectively the you know the soft end of Australian power and and the military is the hard end of Australian power, I think you know the message against all of these areas is that we have just been underinvesting uh, for decades, mm -hmm. underinvesting for decades. So we're we're all um, high fiving ourselves at just reaching about 2% of gross national product being spent on defence. But, you know, that is um, compared to what we were spending in Cold War years, which was sometimes between 3.5% and 4% of gross domestic product. So what we have grown used to, Tom, I would say, is, you know, we've free-ridden on the United States coattails of security for, for decades. We've dramatically under um, invested in the things that we need to do to strengthen Australia's position, not just militarily, but also diplomatically. And now we're rather surprised to hear the news that, gosh, the bill is a lot more expensive than we really thought it was, only mm. if you've got that confidence in the US. Uh, and in fact, you know, the whole Trump story is a story of the Americans really just be being fed up with the rest of the world, thinking that the US can fund the bill for, for their security. So we're going to have to do more, and I think we're going to have to do it against a multiplicity of areas, not just inside the defence organisation. Well, well, some scholars such as Hugh White and, and James Curran from the University of Sydney, they say that this document sounds uh, a lot like an acknowledgement that the US might not always be there to help us out. Uh, Bates Gill, are we starting to plan for a more independent Australian defence posture? Well, I think it would be a, a wise move to keep that option open. When you think of the um, capabilities that the Chinese are developing and which do have a direct, pose a direct threat to uh, Australia or could do so, uh, in many respects, they're, they're, I think they're the types of threats that uh, you, you might not expect uh, an immediate uh, or even timely response on the part of the United States. Uh, what I'm thinking here, uh, cyber capabilities is a huge uh, priority for the Chinese, and we already know uh, what they the sort of capability they can wield against Australia, um, and that's not the sort of thing you can expect a kind of cavalry to um, you know, lead the charge from, from Washington to, to come to Australia's defense. Similarly, uh, long-range strike 
capability on the part of the Chinese, a uh, capability they already have and which they're going to continue to develop and which could threaten Australia down the road. Now, these are capabilities that I think that Australia is going to have to develop their own defenses for. They can certainly do that with the United States. But again, it's not necessarily the sort of threat that we would expect some sort of traditional allied joint response uh, to make. Yeah, well, some of my RN listeners will email me and they'll say that if Uncle Sam struggles to police its own cities, uh, Melissa, how on earth can Uncle Sam police the Asia-Pacific region in the face of a rising China? What's your sense about US staying power in the next decade or two? Yeah, look... Um, it's difficult. Uh, one of the things that um, the strategic update looks at is, you know, more threats to the global rules-based order. And unfortunately, you know, the US is part of that too. Um, you know, the US is not in line with Australia's interests on things like global trading system um, and a number of international organisations like, you know, global health, uh, where we would say you need to be supporting um, a, a global response. Um, that said, I mean, I don't think the strategic update will be read negatively um, in Washington, it's my guess. Uh, it's very clearly couched in terms that I think the US will like about Australia contributing more and having more self-reliance. Um, uh, th that could be seen as a statement that we think that the US might not have our backs, but can also be seen as you know something that the US has been arguing for for a long time. Um, I, I particularly liked a few elements of the update, things like um, making sure that we have, you know, material and ammunition, um, you know, that aren't going to be disrupted by global supply chains, having more uh, capability, um, you know, industrial sovereign capability here, and particularly things like fuel reserves, which is, you know, has been long seen as an issue for us. So, I mean, those are things that are worth investing in, um, regardless of US resolve, because as we've seen from COVID, we know that uh, supply chains can be disrupted very quickly and easily, and it's worth having um, our own abilities. My guests are Peter Jennings, Bates Gill, and Melissa Conley Tyler. And Melissa, the Pacific step up last year uh, that realigned Australia's development budget to deal with some of the strategic challenges posed by China in the Pacific. Uh, do you think it goes far enough? The Pacific step up was uh, followed recently by uh, Australia's new international development policy, uh, Partnerships for Recovery. And that's made it very clear that um, Australia's focus should be on the Pacific and also Southeast Asia, including um, Indonesia and uh, Timor-Leste. I think that has a, a very clear statement about what we want in the region, uh, being a trusted development partner and influencing um, those societies in ways that we think are positive for um, for our region. Again, and you're going to you're going to say you hear this from me all the time, but again, the problem is that we're not really making much of an investment. So, uh, partnerships for recovery had no new money. It talked about the massive challenges that COVID is as as creating for for the for the Pacific and for for our region more broadly. And the only um, funding announcement that we, was that we're going to repurpose the money we would have spent on sending Australian um, volunteers and scholarship holders, uh, <laughs> and we're going to use that. So I, I suppose I feel this a little bit with, with all the areas, and I'd actually include this strategic update in that as well, that what we've seen through, you know, the foreign policy white paper, then this international development policy through to, to the um, defence strategic update, is we talk about how difficult difficult the region is, how, what a time this is for us to be living, a contested, difficult, um, awful environment that we've now got to live in and that our, our easy time is over. 
And then we say, and we're not going to give any new money. So, I mean, the defence announcement is essentially just that we're going to continue to, you know, extrapolate out the money that was planned to be spent in the, you know, to 2026, and we're going to extrapolate that out to 2030. So, Bates Gill, do we risk getting into a bidding war for influence in the Pacific? Well, I don't know if it's a risk. I mean, I, I, if it is, it's a risk worth worth taking. I mean, obviously, uh, the, the Pacific region is so extremely important to Australia's future and to both for for defence reasons, for uh, you know, regional engagement, for diplomatic reasons, development reasons and the like. Uh, so uh, it's quite possible that we're entering in a more competitive uh, phase uh, with China in this region. I suppose when I say it's a risk, Bates, I'm talking about more the, the budgetary concerns here because in the wake of the coronavirus crisis, there will be serious limits on how much we can spend on these things, surely. Yes, there is, uh, and part of it will have to be be developed for that. But, um, you know, when you're talking about your own backyard, I mean, I, I, I don't think Australia is the kind of country that can simply uh, pretend that it's by itself. Getting back, Peter Jennings, to the, the region generally and the rise of what uh, Angus Campbell, is the chief of the Defence Force, he's talked about the rise of political warfare, the idea of grey zone warfare, things like cyber attacks, economic coercion, influence operations that fall below the traditional threshold of war. He says we need a whole of government response to it. Are you seeing that whole of government approach happening in Canberra or is this mainly focused on defence and the spy agency so far? Peter Jennings. It probably is focused on the national security agencies, uh, Tom, but uh, that's not too surprising because you'd expect them to sort of pick up on the risks first. Uh, but General Campbell is right. It does need to be whole of government. There's there's a whole lot of things happening there that uh, simply cannot and should not be done by defence organisations. Um, and I think that realisation is slowly dawning uh, along as both other speakers have said that actually leadership comes uh, with cost if, if Australia is going to play that role. But, you know, I'll give you a small example of this. We, we have lost the ability to broadcast into um, the South Pacific and Southeast Asia in a way that we used to do very successfully over, over decades. To give us the capacity to do that, we're probably talking about you know, 30 million a year, 40 million a year, which sounds a lot if you're in DFAT. It's nothing if you're in the Defence Department, let me tell you. Uh, but you need to be able to do things like that to be the truth teller in the region, you know, to actually tell the region that there are alternatives to Chinese Communist Party authoritarianism. I, I think that's what's needed with responding to this grey zone threat um, is actually to be the truth teller in this part of the world. And um, getting our system in Canberra used to that reality, to understanding what needs to be done, uh, to starting a different type of conversation with our region, uh, with our own people for that matter, that that is a sort of a psychological change which I can see happening but we're not quite there yet. There's a bit of work still to be done to get to that point. Melissa Conley-Tyler. Yes, um, just responding on that, I, I agree entirely with what Peter's saying on uh, on broadcasting. I mean, it's it's a small investment, 
such a, a, you know, an increase in influence, it should be a no-brainer. Uh, and I, I hope that, that that's being seen. I think having defence voices say it will help a lot in it being seen seriously. Um, but just when, when you asked, Tom, about um, hold of government um, and what's happening there, there are some really good examples. So, um, for example, when the Pacific Step Up uh, started, an office of the Pacific was established in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And its job is to be that coordinating body. And it's bringing together the defence, the development, and the diplomacy in a way that is going to maximise our influence. Um, and I, I've noticed there's a lot more discussion about that that 3D. How do you bring the defence development diplomacy um, communities together? I'm involved in an initiative, the Asia Pacific 4D, and there's a, I think a lot of people now talking about what more we can do for that that joined up coordination to make the most of our national instruments. Bateskill, you're an expert on China. The elephant in the room, of course, is China. Do we need to be careful not to overestimate China's military strengths? What about their weaknesses? Well, I think it's exactly right. I mean, you have to uh, know your enemy's weakness as well as their strengths. In the case of China, they are undertaking an enormous reform and reorganization effort. They're pouring billions of dollars into new capabilities. But there's a lot of things we need to recognize. I mean, one is that the Chinese have not fought a shooting war in more than 40 years. Uh, they are, have no, they have zero experience in high-end combat against a serious adversary scenario. So that's not to downplay them, but just to understand that they've got enormous obstacles to overcome, that they themselves acknowledge, that they themselves know they have to to overcome. And that's why we have this window that we've been talking about of 15 to 20 years uh, to try and develop the capabilities to get in front of the kinds of things that the Chinese want to bring to bear around 2030 or 2035, 2040. Peter, Bates, Melissa, to be continued. Thanks so much for being on RN. Thank you, Tom. My pleasure. Thanks Thank you, Tom. That was Peter Jennings. He's Executive Director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Bates Gill, Professor of Asia-Pacific Security Studies at Macquarie University, and Melissa Conley-Tyler. She's a research fellow at the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Well, coming next, we're going to replay a version of a segment from Between the Lines archives commemorating the massacre of Bosnia Muslims at Srebrenica on the 11th of July, 1995. That's 25 years ago this week. More than 8,000 people were killed by Serbian forces. It was the worst massacre Europe had seen since the Holocaust. Serb gunners softening up Srebrenica for their army's final push into the town. The town, of course, was supposed to be a safe haven protected by the United Nations, but the civilians ended up being sitting ducks, as aid worker Larry Hollingsworth remembers. I myself feel devastated and ashamed. I was there with them when we told them that it was a safe haven. I watched many of these people walk in with their minimal possessions into Srebrenica, knowing that it was a safe haven. And now they're fleeing out because we've let them down let them down to the extent that within days about 23,000 women and children were deported and about 8,000 Muslim men and boys left behind were executed and buried in mass graves. Now reports from the time described frightening scenes. Stefan Overright from Medicine Sans Frontières speaking here. They are loading some of the children and, uh, and women into buses, but there's no clear indication as to where those buses are going. We've seen some horrifying screening going on, women and children going into the buses, uh, men being uh, taken away from their family. Uh, this was going on with a lot of crying, a lot of panicking. 
The slaughter had been planned carefully and executed with precision. All the while, Dutch peacekeepers literally stood by and did nothing. Indeed, even when the Serb assault on Srebrenica was imminent, UN commanders still rejected calls for airstrikes on Serb positions. Pope John Paul II declared Srebrenica a defeat for civilization, as media reports began to reveal the scale of the unfolding tragedy. The UN says 19,000 people are still unaccounted for, but the whereabouts of some became clearer as government soldiers emerging from the forests in central Bosnia told of horrific massacres at the hands of the Serbs. Catching up the wounded people and executing them on spot. But this didn't come out of the blue. By the time this massacre took place, the civil war that tore the former Yugoslavia apart was heading into its fourth year. More than a million people had been displaced and the world became familiar with a new term, ethnic cleansing. So who was to blame for this? Well, let's start with the United Nations. From 1992 to 95, Srebrenica was the world's first UN-declared civilian safe haven. It was supposed to deter aggression. It was supposed to deter aggression and set the scene for political negotiations to end hostilities between the Bosnian Serbs and Muslims. But the UN soldiers in the safe havens, they were bedeviled by problems. If you declare an area safe haven in the name of the United Nations, if you tell the people that they are safe in the name of the United Nations, you have got to put the troops on the ground there. And it's no good for politicians to say, yes, we go for safe havens, but we're not going to put the troops there. Meanwhile, the Europeans vacillated and equivocated, failing miserably to cope with a crisis at its own back door. America was also reluctant to get involved, as then-President George Bush Sr. explained in 1992. And I vowed something, because I learned something from Vietnam. I am not going to commit U.S. forces until I know what the mission is, till the military tell me that it can be completed, until I know how they can come out. You have ancient ethnic rivalries that have cropped up as, as Yugoslavia is dissolved or getting dissolved, and it isn't going to be solved by sending in the 82nd Airborne. And although on the campaign trail that year, Bill Clinton pledged to reverse the appeasement of those butchers of Belgrade, as president, Clinton allowed the Balkans to bleed for three more years. French President Jacques Chirac was moved to declare, quote, the position of the leader of the free world, vacant. But Srebrenica changed all that. Having done nothing the year before during the mass killings in Rwanda, Clinton was galvanised into action. And crucially, he cut the United Nations out of the decision chain. On August 30, Washington led a NATO bombing campaign against the Serbs. The NATO action began early this morning. The harsh light of fires and explosions colouring the night sky. Some people watched the bombardment from their houses. But after more than 10,000 deaths here in the last three years, most Sarajevans had given up any hope of outside intervention. Last night it came on a scale which could yet change the course of this war. By the end of 1995, 60,000 NATO troops, including 20,000 Americans, were on the ground in Bosnia. Peace was declared. The Balkans wars ended only because the US finally acted. Here's President Clinton in November 1995. My fellow Americans, in this new era, there are still times when America and America alone can and should make the difference for peace. The terrible war in Bosnia is such a case. 
Nowhere today is the need for American leadership more stark or more immediate than in Bosnia. In the years since the massacre, Europe in action was heavily criticised and the US was held up for its global leadership, in particular for its unilateral humanitarian intervention. This is when the US Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, said America was the indispensable nation. And that idea would feed into the justification of the Iraq invasion in 2003 as a war of liberation. But here's a question. Would the US intervene if the Srebrenica massacre happened today? From the standpoint of 2020, we might ask if the era of US unilateral humanitarian intervention is well and truly over. Well, that's it for this week's show. Remember, if you'd like to hear the episode again or download our segments since 2014, just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Or you can listen via the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can even subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in next week. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.